All right, and we're live with Computer Vision Decoded, Episode 5. Um, if you are here on LinkedIn Live, I'm really excited because today we're going to go over a topic that we have a lot of questions about over time, and you have a unique experience, uh, a unique opportunity to ask questions. I encourage anyone to chime in on the chat there. We'll be watching it as we go along, but we're going to talk about capturing images for 3D reconstruction. And so as we dive into this, there might be some things that are not necessarily clear and that's fine, but you can also go and download the guide. We put it in the notes to this episode on the LinkedIn live description for this episode here. And go ahead and download the PDF. It's not one for one where I'm gonna show you on the slide deck, it's very close, but the slide deck is just a presentation form, but the downloadable guide is what you're gonna want. Now, if you're listening to this on podcast later on, or you can go find this on the YouTube channel, I'll make sure I also have those in show notes as well. But just know if you listen to the audio version, you're going to want to go download that guide to kind of follow along about what we're talking about, or else you might be a little lost as this is a very visual driven episode. So again, this is Computer Vision Decoded, and we're joined here by Jared Heinley. He's our co-host, and he is our in-house computer vision expert. Welcome, Jared. All right. And so again, also, if you've never been to a computer vision decoded episode or listened to one of these, we basically take complex computer vision topics and we break them down for the average person. You do not need to have a background in computer science or computer vision. If you're just curious, that's where we're here to help you decode this complicated world and bring it down to a level that hopefully you understand and can utilize it in your daily life and your business and so on. So, Jared, let's jump into it. I'm going to uh, get my slides up here. Just give me one minute here and um, talk about image capture for 3D reconstruction. Um, so, Jared, a lot of what I'm about to share here, I actually learned from you and um, other computer vision experts. Um, but um, I, 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 the reason why I really want to do this episode, as I'm getting this on the screen here, is that I'm, I'm often posting these amazing scans. And here's just a collection of a few on the screen here. And people say, well, that's incredible. Mine don't look like that. What settings are you using? And that, 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 is, that is the secret. There is, it's, it's less about the settings and more about how you're capturing the images. Is that right, Jared? What do you That's say? Right. That's exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> right. It's, more, it's more about the, you know, how you captured that data than, you know, how it was processed. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, you can only get so much out of a data set if you don't have good data. And so, as we also like to say, garbage in, garbage out. So if you go out there and you just do whatever you want with image capturing for a photogrammetry software, you're just not going to get those results. So uh, just moving along, this is what we want. We want these really cool captures that are really complicated. We got great textures, or if you're doing a point cloud, you got all these details captured. And we'll see people go out there and say, huh, I got like half of what you got. So this is, this is what you want. But how do we get there? And so we're gonna we're basically gonna take you through not everything when it comes to image capture for 3D reconstruction, but we're gonna hit basically the main topics that you're gonna want to focus on as you kind of go down this journey to become 
better at taking photos. And as you learn these basics, you'll you'll realize there's more to it, but at least this this will be the basis of taking good photos. Um, so Jared, can you tell the difference between these two results that I, I took with the same app? One looked very <laughs> different. One looks uh, nice and complete. The other one, not so yes. great. Yeah, so I see this a lot too. So this this just comes down to the fact that you can use any app. This If you recognize that this app, that's great. It's a great app. It'll only work as good as the images and the way you walk around with that app to get the results. And neither of these are perfect, but there's definitely a huge difference. So let's, let's dive into those. Um, so we're going to talk first about camera motions for 3D capture. And this is, I have a visual vocabulary. And in that downloadable guide, you will, you will definitely see that that guide there and that'll that'll help you um to realize how you can walk around a scene so jared why is it important that we stick to these these visual uh or these motions and when you're capturing a 3d a scene in 3d yeah yeah so what, what these motions do is you know it, it enables you to have that good data for the 3d reconstruction so because behind the behind the scenes you know 3d reconstruction it isn't it isn't magic. It's not just like you throw images in and just hope for the best that, you know, some nice, amazing 3D results going to come out. You know, there is some math, there's algorithms, there's a, you know, there's logic that's going on into how that 3D reconstruction is performed. And so what we've done here is, you know, these, you know, good camera motions, you know, these camera motions uh, that we've highlighted here as being good, um, you know, support that, you know, and reinforce the kinds of things that that logic and those algorithms and the math is looking for, you know, whereas those bad camera motions are doing things that violate some, violate some of the assumptions and constraints um, that 3D reconstruction needs in order to actually work. All right. So that, that makes sense. So there's, there's some constraints it has. The computer software needs specific criteria when it comes to capturing images if we don't we don't abide by those laws of 3D reconstruction, it just won't work out. Um, so I categorize this for everyone in a set of motions as good, bad, and transition. And in reality, I'm actually going to walk you through this, not in this quite this order. I'm going to go good, transition, then bad. But the reason why I did this is because a lot of times I'll tell someone, you need to pan the camera. Well, that can mean multiple things. I've seen a lot of jokes online of... <laughs> Panning the camera could be just standing in place and panning left to right. Panning the camera could be moving across a scene, taking like a panoramic while you're moving. There's a lot of ways to interpret that. So if we're on the same set of, of vocabulary, then we can be talking about this all in the same way. And so that, that will be key here is to make sure that as you learn that we all use the same vocabulary and then we can help you out much, much easier. And so we'll stick with the good ones first, the good camera motions. And um, as you capture things, just know that if almost all your movements are good or if they're all good in transition, but mostly good motions, you're going to get these really good results, these, these details that you're, you're going to be shocked by. So this is, this is trucking. This is about as simple as it gets. If you can't do this movement, then you probably sh you probably shouldn't be trying this. This is just walking a straight line, like to say down a car, down a wall, and you're snapping photos. So Jared, what what's happening there that makes this movement considered good? Like what what why why is this a good motion? 
Yeah. The, the, good, the reason that this is a good motion, and, and you'll see a comment for it as, as we talk through these different motions, there's a lot of the same reasoning for why a motion is good or why a motion is bad. And it all comes down to triangulation. Um, so triangulation, you know, a, a key insight there is parallax. You know, so the parallax being the concept where if, you know, you move your head or you move a camera, you know, side to side, near objects are going to move a lot more you know, relatively compared to objects in the distance. So if you have a mountain that's way far off, you know, I can slide my camera back and forth a few feet or a few meters, and that mountain's going to look like it hasn't moved at all. But if there's a tree or a bush that's only, you know, a few meters or feet away from me, that's really going to move back and forth, you know, as I move that camera. And so it's this notion of, of parallax and, and things moving at different distances, you know, that we need in order to do a 3D reconstruction. You know, so I mentioned this word triangulation. So in order to be able to reconstruct a surface, I need to be able to see that surface from two distinct positions. Um, and so seeing that surface from two distinct positions allows me to triangulate, you know, so form a triangle between that surface and then my two camera positions. And so with that uh, with those two positions, you know, I'll be able to perceive this or the computer will be able to perceive parallax, that, that change in motion, change in position uh, and triangulate, you know, recover the accurate position of that surface in 3D. So in this case, in this trucking motion where I'm moving the camera side to side, my object's pretty you know, near to me. We're going to see that surface move a lot as the camera moves with it. Um, and so that's going to give us a lot of really stable uh, triangulation results, you know, being able to take the pairs of cameras and figure out, you know, where is that point? Where is that surface in 3D space? Okay. So I think, of, I think of this for people who maybe come from a geospatial world is as GPS triangulation as well. Like you can't triangulate. Uh, yeah. You cannot triangulate the position of my iPhone on the earth with one satellite. You need multiples. In fact, would you say that just two is the bare minimum to get a triangulated position, but in fact, more is the better. I know there's a diminishing return, but at least having two, but more, more yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I know with GPS you need more, but yeah, here mm -hmm. in, in computer vision, bare minimum is two. Um, but even that, then there's a little bit of ambiguity. And so having more, three, four, five, having more, you know, observations, you know, of that surface from different positions, you get even more accurate results. Yeah. That, that's a good it's a good term observations because you know each position might have a little bit of air in it so the more you have perhaps you'll have a more uh, accurate position that is able to triangulate on the surface okay Absolutely. so let's let's move along so with that basis on getting parallax movement and overlapping images and seeing from points on different view uh, different from different areas or sorry from different locations you'll quickly see that all these good motions have something in common. So the next one is an arc. Now that's 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 basically moving around an object while keeping the camera fixed fixed at yeah, while keeping the camera pointed at a fixed point. Um, I, that point might be in the middle somewhere you can't really see. But hey, I'm just basically walking an arc, a circle around an object. This could be this could be like a more of an oval. But you're keeping that camera pointed in. You're not you're not twisting about as you're walking. You're making sure. That you're keeping kind of the object as your as your center of focus here. Yep. And so yep. again, you're getting that, that parallax. And why that center of focus is important is because now you're gonna see something for longer in the video or the or the pictures you're taking in a row. Yeah. So 
And, and, and then, like in this example with the arc, you have both that parallax because you're moving along or moving around that surface. But this also sort of introduces the concept of smooth rotations. So as you, you know, arc around that object, you know, I'm not quickly, you know, rotating my camera or jerking it. You know, I'm making smooth angular adjustments to that camera's orientation as you move around the object. And so that's also, that's another key factor in a lot of these camera motions is that as you're doing angular change, that that angle change is um, both coupled with, coupled with position change, but is also a smooth, you know, angular motion. Uh, and that's that's going to minimize, as you said, minimize the appearance change between those consecutive images. You know, I, I want that surface to appear as similar as possible between my consecutive images in order to facilitate, um, you know, tracking and, and matching between those images. Because that, that's one of the key concepts behind the scenes when computer vision's performing that 3D reconstruction is it want to, wants to be able to figure out, well, which parts of the image are the same and that uh, is most successful when that image content is highly similar. Okay, that, so that's, that's very helpful. So you've got this smooth motion, we have parallax, a lot of, a lot of overlap between images. Uh, you don't want like to be. I always say you don't want to be waving this camera up and down, up and down as you're walking because you're you're, you're kind of losing features. Even though you're moving in an arc, you want to make sure that, that camera's kind of smoothly. Yeah, you want to stay across. fixated. Right. Yeah. See things for a long amount of time. I don't want to just see it for a few, you know, half a second and then move away. You know, I want to sort of fixate on different parts of the scene and look mm -hmm. at them from different angles or positions. Okay. And so I guess with that as well, um, I, I just know that I, the iPhone LiDAR is quite magic. Um, we can talk about, let's talk about that kind of further down on this, in this show, but you know, I've, it's trained people to just wave their camera around like magic spray paint can that you can just spray points and, and textures onto everything and it just works. And so you, you need to make sure you break those habits if you form them. And again, it's that, that smooth motion, not just moving the camera up and down and seeing things only once. So it's all about seeing things multiple times, multiple positions. So, and then pedestal, uh, this one, this one is basically trucking, but you're going vertical. So yep. we're just, we're just changing the directions from your, your X axis to your Z axis or Y axis if you're a gamer. Uh, but that's this is basically then used. When would I, I guess when would I use this, Jared? When I want to pedestal the camera? Yeah, this will use a lot of times if you have um, like a building facade or, or some sort of taller object. You know, there I might, I might start out. You know, along the you know lower part of that object, then I want to pedestal up to see the middle, and then pedestal up even higher to see the top mm -hmm. part of that object. So essentially, anytime there's you know a surface that's you know has a lot of vertical. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, depth to it that you know I want to move the camera up and down to see all those parts of that facade. All right, and so when you pedestal as well, I always suggest that you use the right tool. So if you have a drone, that's basically just elevating the camera up by flying up higher, or you can use a telescoping monopole, or you use your hand. But depending on how large the object is, let's say this whole building, if I move that camera and I'm I'm back, let's say trying to get the whole side of a building and that that building is I don't know, 30 feet tall or 10 meters tall if i just move my hand up i'm uh, yeah i'm getting a higher view but not really in relative relation i'm not getting a lot of parallax movement on that building um so that's where a monopole might help get get better views or a drone so but if it's a small object like a statue or small like 
Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you're trying to do a teddy bear at home on your, on a desk just to practice. Just moving it up a few inches might be a lot of movement across that object. So it's kind of relative. And we'll, we'll get to overlap where that might make sense. But just know that, hey, you're pedestaling that camera. It's a good motion, but make sure it's not just I'm moving it like a foot or two if the building is huge. It's not really going to do what you're expecting. Yep. Um, yeah. And then the last, the last good motion is called a boom. And so, again, that's that's basically you're doing your vertical arcing. I have this straight arrow, but that, that's more of an arcing motion vertically. So now I'm not, not, I'm not only moving up, but I'm also then giving the camera a slight rotation down. Or you can do reverse boom. You can go down, and, and then you're going from you know angled down towards the ground from an oblique to more of a, a horizontal shot. But what you're doing there is you're, you're not only elevating, but you're also changing the angle mm-hmm. which you're capturing that object. Um, again, it's that smooth motion, that parallax. Um, if 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 we're capturing again a small object, you're gonna do, I'm gonna talk about how to connect these, but you're gonna do a lot of you're gonna do a lot of arcs and a lot of booms or a lot of arcs and a lot of pedestals to get everything you need. Yeah, okay. yeah, and, so and and that boom is nice too. Like with you said before about like the statue example. If you have a statue, sometimes you want a pedestal up and down to get. Oh, you want to get the head, the torso, the legs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, if the arms are extended, sometimes, oh, you want to see underneath the arm. And that's that's where the boom can be nice because you can sort of look, you know, as you move the camera up, you tilt it down so that you can see the top of the arm or then if, or you, you know, sort of boom down with the camera down while tilting up. Now you can see underneath the arm. Um, and so there's you know, examples like that where to capture different components, you know, of an object, you know, you may use a pedestal or a boom. Uh, mm-hmm. depending on if you want to see, you know, just sort of like the main facades or above it, below it, and capture those individual details. Right, right. And uh, once you've learned these four basic motions and then the transition ones, which you can use s- sparingly, you, you can you can go crazy. As long as you're sticking to these motions, you really can't mess up a scan too much. Um, and it, it's all about getting those parallax views and you can use these in any combination. That's Jared was saying, like you got your pedestaling, you get to the top of a really tall object, now you want a boom to get the top of it. You know, you might think this 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 house, if you want to get the roof, at one point you're booming, and then you're looking straight down eventually. So um, okay, so transition m- movements. So these these are basically connectors. So those good motions are what we want, but there is times in which you you just want to orient yourself different in the scene. And Using those motions might not make the most sense, or there's Jared. I'm sure can elaborate on when you'll want to use transition camera movements. Um, but just know that these don't really help or hurt. They just don't really add much to the overall three D reconstruction. So you're not getting any parallax movement so much, and so that's that's why I see people use these movements all the time. And I'm about to talk about that, and it just drives me crazy because they'll do this for the whole capture and say, "Why did I barely get a good result?" So well didn't really do anything that helped so oops went the wrong direction so push in so this one is this one's self-described pretty much you're going to push in on the on the objects you're going to get closer in and uh again you're just moving parallel so you just you're just basically like first person view as if you're putting the camera right in front of you and walking in the same path that's not really helping and what what why why jared does that not help like things are getting bigger does that that alone not help yeah so it it, it doesn't help because of this concept of triangulation. 
So, I mean, the, the reason that this motion is acceptable is that you remain fixated on the object, you know, a common point in space. So as I push in, you know, and get closer to that object, you said that object's going to get bigger um, in within the image, you know, so I'll still stay fixated on it. But when I come back to that notion of parallax and triangulation, you know, that, that object right in the center of the image, um, you know, it hasn't moved at all. You know, I've kept it there in the center as I've moved in. And so I'm trying to see if um, I've formed a triangle, you know, I've got my two camera positions, they were in a line. And then the thing that I'm moving toward is also straight ahead of me. And so all my, my sort of three points, my three corners of that triangle are all in a straight line. And so that's a line and not a triangle, uh, which then means that I can't actually triangulate that surface in 3D space. And so that's where if I, my entire capture was just pushing in, always just walking a straight line with the camera pointed straight ahead, I'm never going to reconstruct something directly ahead of me because I was never able to triangulate it. I never had parallax. I never saw it from different vantage points that formed that triangle that gave me triangulation. Now, technically, you, you have very small triangulation along the edges of the frame. So if there was objects like in this case, you're showing, okay, getting closer to an airplane. And so the tips of those wings, you know, I may be able to see those move throughout the image as I get closer, but I'm only seeing them for a short amount of time and my change in uh, camera position with respect to those uh, points on the, on the airplane didn't move that much. And so that triangulation angle is going to be rather small, which then means the accuracy of that, that surface reconstruction is going to be low. So, yeah, it's, it's not a very good motion. It doesn't add value, as you said. It doesn't add detail uh, to the reconstruction. But it is an acceptable motion because you are remaining fixated on that object. Okay, that, that makes sense. So lack of triangulation lack of parallax movement lacks of just you're just fixating on the movements you're missing kind of those core components to triangulate a, a feature on that airplane there in that example um so then i guess i use push in if i want to get closer in on some details yeah let's say i have an establishing shot of this plane i just stand so far back that i'm getting the whole plane <laughs> get a all, the whole wingspan, maybe in one shot, and then I'm going to walk a loop around this. And then I might want to push in because I want to get some detail uh, because there's a, there's, we don't go into all of the aspects of photogrammetry here and structure, you know, the whole structure from motion and 3D capture, but th there is a concept of you can only get so much data because on a shot at a distance because the, a pixel represents a certain amount of ground or a certain amount of the object. So... If you're really far away, you're not going to get those details. Like, you know, just taking a photo of someone from really far away. If you zoom in, you notice you lose a lot of the, you know, there's no detail on that person. Same here. So you might want to get closer. Jared, if I do that, though, like, let's say, let's say I'm really far from this airplane. I don't know. Let's say I'm 20 feet away. Uh, and then I, I, I get down to three feet away. Is that, is that going to be a problem? Is it going to be able to say, oh, okay. I still can match these features, even though there's a drastic difference. Is there like a limit to that? Where as I'm, let's say I looped this twice, but at again, a huge distance and a very small distance, would it, would it not be able to register those together? Yeah, those, those large changes in scale. So if I, if I went immediately from 20 feet away an object to three feet away, and that was my only photo, you know, my photo was 20 feet, and then I have another photo that's three feet away. Those objects are going to be such a different size in the image that, um, 
yeah, computer vision methods, you know, are just are not going to work. Um, you know, what we're looking for here, like we said before, where, where we wanted the, you know, that nice, nice, smooth rotation, same here. I want nice, smooth translation, nice, smooth position change. So as, as you push in and get closer to that object, you know, be taking photos, you know, as you step forward or as you move closer to capture that detail, um, you know, general rule of thumb, you know, you can get some really great results if, you know, the scale changes, you know, 10 or 20%. Um, you know, between images, that's going to guarantee that you get some really, really great connectivity. There are methods, yeah, you can you can go a little further, but you know uh, that that ten to twenty percent scale change um, maintains some really, really great connectivity. Yeah, um, my, my favorite technique is to instead of just walking straight in, I'm going to walk towards it at an at a at an angle, you could say. So as I'm let's say trucking across this wingspan here, so I'm going across the wingspan. I'll just be walking in towards it. So each picture is getting progressively closer, yet I also have some of that parallax side yeah, movement. That's perfect. That, that way you're not you're not just going from far to close yep. all in one shot. So that, that's that's a, a good way. So we're gonna move to pull out. So this will be really quick because just everything we just talked about for pushing in, this is just the opposite pulling out. So maybe yeah. I'm really close to something and now I need to get it further away. I also think of this as um perhaps the object gets taller on one side. Perhaps you're doing a house and you're just trying to get the whole house in one shot. Well, it might be one story for part of the house and then also the second story. So you might be pulling out to make sure the whole thing's still staying in your camera. Um, maybe you're just trying to get those establishing shots that are a little further out. There's yeah. lots of reasons. As you as you start to explore, you'll, you'll find this is useful to go in and out. But just know as you're going and doing these two movements, you're not really, you're not really mapping out anything. You're not really getting a good 3D reconstruction. And I see... I see pushing in and pulling out most often when people are scanning or taking images of, let's say, like an alleyway, and they just think, oh, okay, I'll just walk straight down the alleyway. Well, the only things that are changing are the very edges of that camera, and you're just you're just not getting anything. The only thing that, well, I guess, changed usually is like the ground right in front of them at the bottom. You might see some of that, but not much. So don't do that. Yeah. I just want to touch there on one of the things you mentioned um, – was the those wide establishing shots, you know, and so I find those to be really important uh, or beneficial when, when doing a reconstruction of some object or a scene. You know, I, I want a mix of both the wide establishing shots to sort of establish context, and that's sort of like the skeleton that's going to hold together the entire reconstruction. We'll touch on this later, this concept of loop mm -hmm. closure and how that ends up being important, but it's these, these wide establishing shots which are going to provide that skeleton, and then if when I add detail then to that skeleton, add detail to that reconstruction, you know, I may push in, capture detail of an object, and then pull back out to reconnect with that skeleton and then I move on, find another part of the scene where I want to have e add detail. So I'll push in, capture that detail, pull out to reconnect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that is a good, as, um, as a good point, you know, those establishing shots can be very helpful. Um, and I always like to think if you have a an establishing shot wide out and you go in and you make a mistake, well, at least you cop, you captured it further out. It's yeah. kind of like here. I want to say insurance, but Hey, it's easier to walk further away from something and just walk around it and not have to worry about all those little intricate move-in spots. Yep. All right. So uh, these last two, these are actually in the guide that we put, published. So if, again, you're tuning in a little late to this, I said at the start, if you look at the notes for or the description for this episode, I did put a guide with all this in there. Um, and it, 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 oh, I omitted a couple of these because 
I wouldn't say to really think about this too much, but they are something that I thought I'd mention while I have you all in here. So um, just know that these are technically not even really moves, I guess the role is a motion, but they are something that to talk about really quickly. So you can roll that camera on axis. That's uh, perhaps you're, I don't know, you're trying to angle your camera in somewhere. And so it doesn't always have to be perfectly horizontal or perfectly in portrait mode. Just know that as you as you roll that camera, you're you're like cleaving off features on the edges. So the the middle is staying in that images. So as you're moving all around and you're and you're rotating, you might be unintentionally losing features that are losing objects in the scene that you could have kept in the scene had you kept that camera, you know, oriented more horizontally or in a portrait style. Yeah. Um, and as you say, yeah, like th this roll motion adds zero information to the reconstruction because that camera is staying still. You're sort of rotating in place yeah. from portrait to landscape or vice versa. So there's no sort of information gain. And so that's why I like, Jonathan, what you said too with your, your example of the push-in, combining a push-in with a truck. You know, so if I'm in a situation where I want to rotate my camera from portrait to landscape just to get a better framing of the scene, I might combine that with a trucking motion or an arc. You know, so I'll, I will rotate from portrait to landscape as I'm actually moving my feet and doing a trucking motion, you know, in the scene. Yeah, I, I may actually end up adding this into that document. So just know that if you download it today, um, I, 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 there's a lot of information that we omitted that we could add, but we want to make sure it was kept to the basics. But yeah, that might be a good one to add, Jared. Uh, just this and static again, zero information added. I'm just standing there with the camera. Yeah. Jared, why would I do that? But why? Yeah, so it, it may seem silly. Like, okay, why would I just hold the camera still and, and take pictures or just or record video or, you know, why I'm holding the camera still? Um, so this is most important or most applicable to video recording. So if I'm recording uh, in a city or in some, you know, in some environment and there's things moving, you know, cars, people, um, or whatnot, uh, if something's going to pass in front of my uh, camera's view, like a car is going to drive by, I'm going to want to stop, you know, look at something, have that car drive by. And then once that car has passed and I'm able to see that object again, and then I'll start moving again. And so what this helps ensure is that I maintain uh, connectivity within that video, because if I'm moving while that car is passing in front of me, I'm not actually capturing the scene and I'm just capturing this moving car, uh, which is going to end up reconstructing well. And so I want to just pause, wait for the scene to become you know, motionless again, and then start moving and resuming my capture pattern. Okay, that, yeah. So that's, that's something we haven't talked about, video versus images, but definitely if you're taking videos, that might that might make or break your scan. Um, just stand still, let things pass through. Uh, I always like to say too, if you're unsure what to do for a minute, you're like, oh, well, should I go that way or this way? It's fine just to stand there, keep the camera pointed at something. It's not going to ruin anything. Um, okay, so now we're going to get to the bad ones, the bad motions. These are what you want to avoid. Um, yeah, <laughs> panning. So that's actually the definition of panning. It's, it's, you're swiveling the camera horizontally from a fixed position. If you have an iPhone, and I'm sure other phones, I, I've never had a non-iPhone smartphone, but there is a panoramic mode where you can stand and do this pan to get these super, super wide sweeping shots. You can, I think you can get a whole 360 if you go just right. And uh, that's great for taking cool photos, but why, why? I'm pretty sure by now you've probably figured out, but why is that not a good idea when I'm taking images to stand in place and just pan that camera? 
Well, it's not good because of triangulation again. So that triangulation, you know, I need cam images from different positions in order to actually have that that triangle, you know, where I can where I can figure out where that surface is based on two different observations from two different positions. And so if I'm just painting the camera, if I'm standing still and just rotating that camera in place, I'm not actually capturing images from different positions. I may be capturing images from different angles and seeing different parts of the scene, but there is no position change. And so triangulation just completely fails and so you're not able to reconstruct um any part of that scene yeah i see this way too much it's so um, easy i mean it's it's so easy to think that oh if i just walk into a room you know this this to me happens a lot of times you know interiors if i'm trying to scan something inside it's it's so easy sometimes just to want to walk into the room look all around in different directions and then walk out while realizing that i just kept my feet you know you know, still in place as I just waved that camera around. But, you know, you, there, there has to be some camera motion. That camera has to translate. That position has to change in order to triangulate those those surfaces. Yeah, I always say capture with your feet. <laughs> you yeah. know, just keep, be Always around. keep your feet moving. <laughs> you, yeah, things will work out if you're always moving. As long as you're not... Uh, I see this too, or someone will... They're like, oh, I was moving, but they took like a really sharp turn, like an outward rotation with mm -hmm. that camera. Mm -hmm. So um, here, let me show you if you're looking at my video here where I'm just kind of like taking, I'm doing that panning motion, but I'm also kind of like just walking like a U-turn. That's not going to work. Even though you're moving, you're not, you're not, you're not really, your, your relative position is pretty darn fixed in one location. Yeah. Yeah, it comes back to that arc. You know, an arc doesn't yeah. mean that you're rotating really quickly in place. It's no, it's there's there's some movement there. There's some positional change. There's, you know, smooth rotational change coupled with position change. Yeah. And I most saw, I see this mostly when people walk into corners. They don't know what to do. I come to a corner. Uh-oh, I'm facing I'm facing north and I need to face east or west or whatever direction you're moving because I'm in a corner. They just then pan across that corner and well, now everything's ruined. Um that, that'll completely ruin if you're just using photogrammetry that'll, that'll just ruin everything same with uh so tilt if you haven't figured it out by now tilt and pan it's just vertical and horizontal um you stick you stick to doing everything but those two motions and you're, it's gonna work out for you again i know i've i've done this myself and you can get away with some tilting but not really um it just don't do it, especially if you're just trying to tilt up to get the top of something and then tilt back down and then keep walking. I'll see, I'll see people do that. Hey, I'm, I'm going, oh, there's this, I want to get this window. And so they'll be walking across the building and then tilt up, get the window, tilt back down, keep walking. It would have been better had they tilted up a little bit and just kept walking as they're tilting. But, you know, not, <laughs> not going to help. Anything you want to add there? I don't know if there's much to add there. Not much. I mean, yeah, it's still the exact same thing. Same thing as that, that pan. Your camera's not actually changing position. You're just, you're just rotating. Yeah. Okay. So this last one, zooming. Um, again, it's like capture with your, you know, move with your feet. Don't zoom your camera. That's specifically most important if you are using a video because we don't necessarily know that the camera properties have changed. So if you have a zoom camera, it's it's it can the the software might not know that the camera has changed, so it gets really confused. Um, and and also. Even if you're taking images, it's just something that if you just use a, a either a fixed camera, uh, a prime lens or a fixed camera, or it doesn't have a zoom lens, you don't have to worry about this, but it, we have seen people do that. They'll like zoom in as they're moving. Don't know why. It can also happen on cameras that have like a, a physical zoom ring, right? We're on like a, 
like a DSLR or mirrorless where they accidentally bumped that ring and now all of a sudden their zoom is moved and that's, that's not going to help. So what do you have anything you want to add on that, Jared? Like why, why zooming can confuse the software? Yeah. So, so zooming, what it's doing is it, it, yeah, it's changing the properties of that lens. You know, it's changing the field of view. So, you know, in, in one image, I might've had a 60 degree horizontal field of view. And then the next image, it's 30 degrees because I've zoomed in and I'm seeing, you know, a smaller portion of the scene. And it's not just a smaller portion of the scene. You know, it, it's the way that, you know, the, the geometry of that lens, you know, as the light comes in that lens, um, you know, it's what angle of light is captured by that lens. And then, uh, ends up on that sensor. So what a lot of computer vision packages do, computer vision software packages or, you know, photogrammetry or 3D reconstruction packages is they're going to estimate uh, the intrinsics, estimate a 3D model of that camera. And it does that in order to, gen you know, generate more accurate results. So if I take a bunch of images with a, you know, 50 millimeter lens, you know, on my DSLR, you know, while it, it, you know, it may, that image may have some EXIF that says it's 50 millimeters, the photogrammetry, the reconstruction software is going to refine it. Maybe it really was 49 or 49.5. And so it can do some refinement. Well, that refinement is most accurate when I have a bunch of examples. So I've had a bunch of images all taken at 50 millimeters, you know, that all had that same focal length, that same zoom level. Then I'm able to get a really accurate estimate of, well, what was the real physical geometry of that lens. Uh, similarly with distortion, you know, if there's any um, distortion at the edge of the image, like where the, the image looks like it's warped or curved, um, software packages can also estimate that too. And that can be a function of how much zoom was there um, in the lens. And so you get mm -hmm. best results when you have a bunch of examples of imagery all from those same you know, with those same camera parameters. And as you mentioned mm -hmm. with video, sometimes video can be more challenging because there isn't consistent EXIF. There isn't consistent metadata in there to let the software know that, oh, I'm changing zoom levels halfway through the video. And so this subset of frames is at one focal length and this other subset's at a different focal length. So that's where it's best. You know, I get best results when, you know, all of the images, you know, or that entire video is at a single zoom level because then the software package is able to use all of those frames, all of those images to get a nice refined estimate for the camera properties. Okay. Okay. So that it's all about avoiding that the camera intrinsics, the, the, the focal length, the, the, the distance of the sensor to the glass and all those things from changing yep. as you're going and specifically also the software, not knowing those have changed for yep. one, but also even if they do change, it's just not helpful. Uh, we do have a great comment. Jim added, um, if you're capturing items at scale using various tools, non-phone-based rigging, prime lenses are best. Yes, I always say a prime lens. If you just stick with a prime lens and just one prime lens and move in and out with your feet or just get different angles, that's great. Uh, I would add to his comment that if you're looking at buying a drone, you'll see like these Zoom drones, like the Mavic Air, when the Mavic 2 Zoom and the Mavic 2 Pro, I think they're on the 3 now, but just know, I even think the 3 Pro has a zoom and a non-zoom lens. You want to use the one that can't zoom because even if you don't change the zoom level of a lens, it, especially the vibration on a drone, it might be slipping in and out of different focal lengths just slightly. Like you wouldn't know the difference looking visually at a photo, but can tell you the software knows the difference it will it'll say hmm something's weird and your focal length just keeps moving a little bit um and we've seen that 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 as a problem so just know that 
that's a problem. All right, so um, zoom. So now let's put some of these together. Um, I think we can pick up the cadence and we kind of have that. But um, so I have like this do this, not this image here <laughs> of, of uh, a telephone box in, in that you'd find in the UK. And again, I see people do this. They're like, okay, I want to get all the details and they'll just walk circles around this. I, I always say walk multiple circles. We'll talk about it in just a minute. But the fact that they didn't move the camera pedestaling it up and down, it's not going to help. And you can see this illustration. You probably, you might not be that close to the actual object, but that you want to actually take multiple arcs, multiple circles around that and actually be moving that camera up, keeping some sort of perpendicular angle to that, uh, to the objects. Um, would you add anything to that? You know, like that, what's rolling on with the arc plus tilt there that, that you wouldn't like. I mean, the arc, the arc and tilt will work, but it's just, it's a lot better to have the arc plus, ped, arc plus pedestal because in the mm -hmm. arc plus, plus pedestal, you're adding additional camera positions. You know, if I just do three arcs all at the same sort of elevation, um, my set of camera positions is just, you know, one ring of positions around that object. But by having the pedestal, you know, I'm getting additional positions from which I can triangulate that surface. I can start even triangulating the surface from those multiple elevations in addition to multiple positions around that arc. And you, as well as you said too, it's also beneficial because the camera maintains, uh, it's looking at that surface in a perpendicular direction. And you can get some mm -hmm. better reconstructions when the camera is, you know, oriented or positioned so that it's viewing a surface in a perpendicular way. Yeah, it so I guess when we get to, to the loop closure, you can explain a little bit too more about how that might help. But also, yeah. I also find that you get more occlusion when you're looking at things at all these different angles, like from three three angles, but from the same position, you're going to have occlusions. Things are going to kind of get missed because overhanging objects will kind of block it. But if you move up and around, you might see around that object better and, and fill in more detail. So there's, there's I don't want to say the arc plus tilt on this specific one wouldn't work. It just, you won't get as great a result. Yeah. Um, well, it's yeah. not, not quite as good. And so uh, I, I, I'm going to throw this in here really quick again. Jim added one more comment about using digital zooming and sensor cropping, and I, he's absolutely correct as well. You don't want to crop on a sensor. Um, again, it's just that detail loss. And if you don't have the detail, it's, it's, it's like garbage in, garbage out. So if you got a really low detail um, in that image, then you, you're not going to get the full benefit of using that camera that you have in your hand by yeah. digitally zooming. I know Apple does that. So like uh, they'll have like a one and uh, the pro, the newest pro has like one, two and three. And I know they do different things to give you different outputs, but um, I know some of them will have like a, they have presets but between those presets. You're actually digitally zooming in and out because there's the ultra wide normal and telephoto. And those three are actually at those like preset zooms or preset uh, sensor sizes. And then if you, if you if you zoom between those two, you're starting to do that that sensor cropping. All right. Okay, so here's here's a couple more. We're just kind of going to go through this quick. I like arc plus boom. This is how you would capture like a small object on a table or even a larger object, even a house. For all I know, if you have a, if a drone, but it it it's actually got a little bit of arc plus. Uh, sorry, it's got a little bit of pedestaling as well with the arcs. But just know that. Like I capture a shoe or something cool like that. I'm just going to do a lot of circles that different, get, getting progressively higher and a, and at a more of a downward angle until I get to the top where I'm practically taking pictures in a circle at the top. Um, just 
pretty simple. That's about that's a good one to practice with. Truck plus arc. You could do this around the whole building. You just basically walk. You just follow. I like to think of following the contours at the major primitives of that building. Like you got a flat area here. It's like a box. But when you come to a corner, you want to round those corners. You want to keep that corner in view the whole time. And I always think of like, okay, I'm going to pick something in the specific corner and just make sure that stays in the middle of my camera the whole time. And that way I don't accidentally pan left or right or get some bad movement introduced. So just pick something, move around that specific general spot, and then move in a straight line again when you can. And then truck plus pedestal. This one looks like a sideways version. If you've ever if you've ever tried one of those drones that can automate flying mapping out, that's basically this turned on its side where I'm going to go back and forth, up and down. This is a good one for getting, let's say, that building with all the that house with all those windows and everything. You might want to do that to work your way up a wall. You can use a monopole or a selfie stick or a drone. Um, but again, it's your, 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 changing your position as you're going and you're getting a lot of parallax between each kind of corn row there as you're going um so those are kind of like three main ones again if you're a drone just take like that same truck plus pedestal turn it looking straight down and that's how you can map out the ground you're just basically doing these rows and i always suggest using software the software made for that you don't have to do any of the legwork and it will pre-calculate all this for you Anything you want to add to this set here, Jared? No, I mean, I think you covered great examples of these. I mean, it's just, yeah, in all of these examples, you know, the, the key insights is that there's always camera movement. You know, that, that camera's mm -hmm. position is changing, you know, and then those angular motions, you know, are, are smooth and happening at the same time as position change. Yes, yes. Smooth motions, parallax, it all works out. So then the last one is another do this, not that, the corner. <laughs> People do a room, people do a, I don't know, they're just, they're, they're, I see this, this is one I see more often than anything else. They'll walk themselves into a corner. That is not good. Never put yourself in a corner. You want to make sure that you do, I think of it like almost like a, like a three point turn with a car where you're, you're going to scan a corner by walking in a perpendicular path to a wall up until you're basically your right shoulder on this example is against the wall. You can't go any further, but at that point, you should have that corner in view of your camera. And then you're going to arc around that camera or arc around that corner, keeping that, 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 you know, corner in the view the whole time. Now you're getting that great smooth parallax movement and like getting all that translation. And then you're going to then truck your way out the other way. So now notice I've moved direction 90 degrees, but not by panning. So I see that panning all the time and it's, it's, um, it, it's, uh, people have tried many of these photogrammetry apps on iPhones, things like that, that are using just pure photo mode. And they're like, oh, the rooms don't work. Well, they're doing this. This is probably the, the major reason that they're not getting the results they expect. So uh, I can take this as an opportunity, Jared, to explain why when I'm using, let's say, any one of those many LiDAR apps with iPhone, that I'm able to get away with this exact motion because I do this. <laughs> and it's magic and it just yeah. works or the new room plan even all those i can just kind of move the camera and wave it around like a like a magic wand and it all works what what have they managed to do that that makes this still work yeah no great question so it, it comes down to the technique or you know the method in which that surface is reconstructed so in here, in the photogrammetry sense, when I'm using images to reconstruct the surface, in order to figure out the depth of that surface in the scene, you know, I need to be able to triangulate it. I need images at different positions to be able to have that angle 
or that parallax to triangulate that surface in the scene. Mm-hmm. Whereas with, you mentioned these LiDAR apps, so you know, on the latest iPhones, iPads that have LiDAR, uh, the LiDAR is an active sensor. You know, it's, it's measuring the distance to, you know, points in the scene using, you know, infrared light. Um, and so that gives you the depth of the scene, you know, almost for free. Like I don't have to move my camera. There doesn't have to be parallax in order for that sensor to be able to see what the depth is. And so that's why you can stand in the middle of the room, rotate in place, not even move the position of that camera. And the LiDAR sensors can be able to give, you know, the depths of all of the things in the scene. Um, mm-hmm shortcomings though is that lidar sensor only has a limited range you know it's only good out to five meters you know and so if you're trying to reconstruct something that's farther than that um you know or you want to get higher detail or higher uh accuracy results that's where the images with their greater resolution you know you can see beyond that five meters um that's where the photogrammetry comes into play and you actually need to have that positional movement in order to recover the recover the depth of those surfaces in the scene Mm, okay so they, they they got way more going on to to make that work and again if you just have photos you don't have all that information to to recover there so that's you know that's unique and i think that is that is the reason why most people who are going from an iphone scanning app with lidar to trying out photogrammetry to get a higher quality scan are failing because they just were trained oh i can just do that and then put apples apples all the sensors all that information all that all those techniques to recover your bad motions when it comes to to capturing this and you know there's more air in those scans by far too that you'll mm-hmm. find they do a really good job keeping the air on that that tracking to a minimum but you will see it accumulate especially over larger distances all right uh-huh. okay so now we're gonna get to kind of more some tech i guess everything's been technical but this to me is a little bit more technical that I'm really happy that we have Jared on this call or on this this uh, this episode because loop closure can be a very complicated thing to explain, but I hope he can explain it in a way that that makes sense to everyone and why it's really important. Uh, I I have this diagram here. It's not the best diagram, but just it's just trying to show you what is going to happen when you get a loop closure. So Jared. When I'm capturing this van here, it's got tons of loop closures. I'm doing tons of, I think I walked around this van 10 times and I got all these loop closures and I got this great result. And so Jared, what is loop closure and why do, why do I want to do it? Why do I, why did I want to walk around this van multiple times besides just getting different angles? Like, why is that helping? Yeah. So loop closure, I mean, what it is, is it's, yeah, you're closing the loop. You know, you're, you're, you're walking somewhere and you come back to, you know, some place that you've been to before. Um, now, so wh- why would you want to do that? Well, in 3D reconstruction, as well as many other sensing technologies, there's a concept of drift. You know, as I'm trying to estimate my position and orientation over time, you know, I'm going to do that based on things that I've seen previously. You know, and so going from, you know, position one to position two and then to position three, you know, every time I move to a new position and I'm looking back on my previous ones, I may have made small errors. You know, and it might be really, really tiny, you know, tenths of a percent, thousands of a percent error going from one measurement to the next. But if I do this enough times, 100 times, 1,000 times, 10,000, 100,000 times, those really, really tiny errors are going to accumulate. And I may end up being off by, you know, several, you know, several percent, which in, in, in this scan could mean that after walking 100 meters, I may be off by several meters um, in, in my estimated position. 
So where loop closure comes into play is if if I'm able to come back to a place that I've been to before, those images, and, and, you know, come back to a place that I've been to before and look at a similar part of the scene, that 3D reconstruction software is going to be able to recognize that and say, oh, okay, these two very separate points of that walking path, of that trajectory, should be same or should be very similar, and it can, you know, bend and warp you know, that reconstruction, basically, you know, canceling out all of that accumulated error uh, and, and getting it back to zero. And so in this example with a car, you're doing this many times, not just one, one loop around the car, you have many loops at different elevations. And so each of those loops at different elevations are just adding, you know, a lot of redundancy, a lot of strength um, in the connections between those images. And so there's going to be, you know, very, very, very little uh, accumulated drift. The um, sort of physical example that I like to think about when, I, when I'm thinking about loop closure um, or these connections between images, you know, is a bridge. You know, sure, I can build a bridge with just a single beam, you know, across the two, you know, two sides of a river, you know, but if a heavy truck's in the middle of that beam, that beam can flex and bend really easily. You know, that's why a lot of bridges are going to have, you know, it's like a truss bridge. There's going to be extra struts um, and other, you know, beams and bracings. Uh, that add rigid, you know, um, that, that make that structure more rigid. You know, I'll have two beams that are offset, you know, in you know, maybe vertical and horizontal directions, and then there's struts that connect them. Um, and so that gives you this very rigid structure that's hard to bend. Same thing here in photogrammetry. If I'm doing multiple loops at different elevations or different distances to that object, you know, so I have, you know, a multitude of different camera positions, that then is further strengthening uh, the triangulations that I'm able to do of that surface, as well as helping to cancel out accumulated error as I was moving through that camera trajectory. Okay, so that makes sense. So each 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 image has got a little error, just to sum this up. As you're moving along, that error accumulates, and that's how you end up with saying, this: the green's the true path. This is like actually what I did. Red path's what we triangulated. Let's say this is, you're walking around a whole soccer pitch or something really large. That error might be quite sizable because it's compounding an effect of little errors over time. But as we as we see things over again, it's able to say, oh, okay. I see that now from this position. I'm able to refine those last that the other positions and say, okay, that was off a little bit. Now to make this all make sense, we gotta fix all those positions and eventually it just creates this rigid correlation between all the images and snaps them to where they are or as close as we can get. I know yeah. there still can be some error. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that loop closure is going to make everything 100% accurate, but it definitely goes a long ways. Yeah. Um, I don't have slides here on like how to get loop closure. Obviously, if I'm walking around an object, if you come back to where you started, and I say go a little past that, even get a little bit more extra than just like one image that's mm-hmm. where you started, that'll that'll help because at least it's, it's it's about coming back to that point too from a different position. You're not coming back necessarily right from the. You're not going to like. You're not coming from the starting from from the same direction that you you just walk from. You're you're coming from a different direction, so it's going to say, "Oh, okay, I should be I should be right here on this place on the soccer pitch, but I'm actually five feet over." Okay, we're going to snap that together and make it all make sense going backwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and the more of you do this, it's like, I, I I guess I also like to think of like a puzzle. If you do the edges of a puzzle. You know, you're not quite sure how big this puzzle is going to be, and then you get all the puzzle pieces together, and it kind of snaps into this this 
edge of a puzzle. And I know this might be a bad analogy, but you got this puzzle, but even still, like it, it's kind of squishy. It's not until you start to fill in all those other puzzle pieces within a puzzle, then it starts to build some rigidity and the, your puzzle doesn't want to like shift around and you can get a true shape of this thing. And when you get all those puzzle pieces in there, you got a lot of interconnection between all these puzzle pieces. That puzzle is like locked in stone. You're not going to be able to like yeah. stretch and morph the border of it. Um, and that's kind of like, again, maybe not the best analogy, but it's it's kind of like we're building that rigidity in, in, in positions and making sure, okay, I saw, I saw that car window from 12 different positions at 12 different loops. Okay, I got a pretty good idea where it's supposed to really be. All the air starts to uh, be worked itself out. Yeah, and that's actually, I mean, I, I like that example. You talked about, you know, it's, you know, so loop closure, it's more than just big loops. Like you said, with that mm -hmm. puzzle, it's like, sure, I can I can do a, a full loop around that object. I can get that edge, that border of my puzzle, um, but that, that puzzle can still, you know, shift and you know and wiggle a little bit it's not until i have all those like tiny loops all of that interconnecting structure in the middle that then you end up with this nice rigid uh mm -hmm. structure and so same thing here too like as it's not just you know one loop around the vehicle you did multiple loops at different elevations different distances to the object and so that's adding just you know a ton of redundancy a ton of multiple of ops you know a ton of you, know, you have multiple observations of each point on that surface, which then gives you really, really nice mm -hmm. um, connectivity and accuracy of that surface. Okay, so loop closure is good. One loops, one loop is better than nothing. Yeah. Sub loops are great. Yep. I'd say multiple loops around objects at different elevations or different distances away. Again, we don't want to go from like five feet or one meter away from something and then go, like, you know, twenty feet or ten meters back. We want to be changes sort of the scene looks a little different but um getting more of those the better um there's there's overkill that's van may have been overkill the only reason why you see so many loops here is because i was trying to get the whole van it wasn't a lot of space to walk around it and so i had to do like a loop and then move the camera up just a little bit so we're about to talk about a camera overlap and that kind of also explains why i ended up doing so many loops here it's just i could only capture so much you don't want to move so much that then that the that the taller loops don't connect to the lower loops. You want to make sure you're incrementally moving along. So uh, let's see here. Let's jump to the next. So image overlap. So again, we went through camera motions. We talked about loop closures, coming back, seeing things that you've seen before to give you a stronger connections of your images and geometry and making sure that doesn't have a weird warped shape. And the last major thing you need to focus on is your overlap between images. And so... I have this graphic I'm trying to show is like, here's your, here's a house and I'm going to take photos as I'm walking in a, a trucking motion. So I'm moving across and I only stepped these camera pic pictures up a little bit. Just can you, you can see the separation from photo one, two, and three, but in reality, yeah, they really might be all the same elevation. What matters here is that we were getting at least a third new scene, but keep more importantly, keeping two thirds of a feature in the next image. So um, you can see in this middle portion here, this, this smaller garage door bay is actually contained in all three photos. And that's because we're only moving in thirds. So you, of course we're gonna see that in three different photos. And that's, Jared, would you say that's like, we should be aiming for just that? Should we go more or less? Yeah, yeah that, that, that to me is sort of the bare minimum of what you need. Um, you know, like ideally I would like, you know, at minimum, I need to see that point in three images, you know, ideally four or more. Now you may ask, mm -hmm. well, why was that? You just said, you know, a few, several minutes ago that I can do triangulation with two images and it does work. Mm -hmm. Well, here, um, 
the issue is in, in the way in which, well, if, if I have two images, how do I add that third? How do I add that fourth? You know, and, and so on. You know, the way that I can grow a reconstruction is that I, you know, that third image needs to see similar content as those first two. And then that fourth image needs to see similar content as at least two previous ones. And it, it comes down to the way in which a lot of um, 3D computer vision packages or photogrammetry packages actually do the reconstruction. You know, they're going to start out with two images. They're going to triangulate the surface in the scene, and then that third image is going to get added by figuring out, well, how does it match to that already triangulated surface? And so in, in the process of doing that, in order to do that, there actually has to be overlap with that existing triangulated surface. And so that third image needs to have overlap with at least two previous ones in order to do that successful triangulation and you know, an extension of the reconstruction. So for me, mm -hmm. I'd say, yeah, bare minimum is that, you know, two-thirds overlap, you know, 67%. Um, but I, I usually like to shoot for, you know, 70 or 75% overlap, um, you know, as more of a, you know, a, a safer minimum um, when, I'm, when I'm doing the, you know, snapping the photos to, to do that reconstruction. Yeah, so if you dive into the documentation of a lot of the photogrammetry software packages out there, they will call this out 70-plus 70, 70 percent overlap. But know that if you do get 67-ish percent, things will work out. But yeah, more the better. Um, yeah. And there's times where you want to shoot 80% overlap or 90% overlap. But um, as you're learning, yeah, just just aim to... And as, If I was walking across this house and you're taking photos, and we'll talk about video versus photos here in a few minutes, but uh, I, just, I just like to think of just... I'm just constantly hitting picture, picture, you know, take a, few, a step... And that way you're just, you might be hitting an overkill. It might take you a little longer, but boy, if maybe it takes you five minutes longer to do this or 10 minutes longer, it's a whole lot quicker than going and doing the whole thing over again because you didn't get enough images in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can always overshoot. You can't undershoot. So it's always use a good, it's always good to introduce the grid into the viewfinder. So here we go. Mark added, use the, use the, the grid in your viewfinder as your marker. That does help for sure. Yep, that's um, a good recommendation. You, <laughs> You do enough of these, like I've done it for about 10 years, I've been capturing uh, images for 3D reconstruction. It just becomes like second nature. But if you're not doing it and you're just learning, yeah, that's a great, great um, um, recommendation. Use that viewfinder. And if you don't know how to do that, you can just look up the settings on your on your camera, on your smartphone, or in your, your DSLR. If you have DSLR, I'm guessing you know how to do that. Um, okay, so then... That was that's moving in a straight trajectory. That's trucking um, or pedestaling. Knowing that also in pedestaling, you won't necessarily move as far because you're you're depending on how you're holding that camera. You see they're horizontal. You see they're got a wider width or a taller. You know, either hold a portrait or a landscape. So if you're moving in a landscape, you you can move a little bit further to keep keep that high overlap. But if you're moving in the opposite direction, you might not have very much movement because as you're moving the opposite way let's say vertically and you're holding the camera in the orientation of this photo it's just not as much being captured top to bottom but in this this is a little different so this is this is me i want to like i'm walking a circle around this this roller here um and what i'm illustrating here again is i want to get high overlap but it feels different when you're rotating um because things don't just change in the screen like just doesn't just parallax over um but what i'm trying to show here is notice this handle in each image 
is it's moving right to left as I'm kind of circling around this thing, but it's, it's, it's persistent. It's staying between multiple images. And this really isn't a scale. You probably see this. There's probably much closer, closer spaced images if you're close in, but you know, what, what is your recommendation, Jared, for when I'm moving in a I'm doing a, an arc around something that's a little different. Yeah. So when you're, when you're arcing around something, you may think, well, Hey, I, I still, as I'm rotating around that, you know, I'm, I'm still pointed at that object. So my overlap should be high. I'm still seeing at least 75%, you know, of that object as I rotate, you know, I should be able to walk pretty far and snap a new photo. Well, the, the other thing that a play here is, you know, the angle at which you're viewing that surface. And we kind of touched on it a little bit before with the arc, you know, which is what we're doing here, arcing around the object. Um, so again, one of the, the things that uh, is um, needed for a good 3D reconstruction is to have the appearance of that object stay similar between consecutive images. And part of that appearance is its sort of orientation or tilt or, you know, rotation within the scene. So as I rotate around the object, that you know, surface that used to be perpendicular to me is now going to start to be slanted and more oblique. And then eventually it's going to be, you know, comp you know, its appearance is completely change. And so what I look for here with the rotation is I want to sort of have a consistent, you know, somewhat small rotation change between consecutive photos so that the appearance of that surface is not dramatically changing between those photos. So my sort mm -hmm. of rule of thumb, you know, is I, I want there to be you know, a three or four degree rotation change between images. Um, so if I'm going to walk around an object, yeah, I may take a hundred photos of that object, um, you know, to, to, to form that full 360 degree rotation, you know, and what that, what that's ensuring is that consecutive images, um, or not even consecutive images, but sets of images, you know, five images in a row are all going to have very similar appearances of that surface, which then is going to allow me to, you know, find those corresponding points in the surface and get accurate triangulations because I was able to see that surface from different angles. Uh, and the software was able to detect that that is the same surface. So yeah, okay. key takeaways here. Yes, you're rotating around the object, you're, you're, you're arcing around the object, taking photos, but you know, have that rotation change between consecutive photos be in that sort of three to four degree uh, range so that you end up with you know, high, high visual appearance or visual similarity in the appearance of that scene. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely see that this is very important too with kind of like thinner, flatter structures or things that look quite different as you move yes. in a small amount of distance. So yes. uh, flattish facades, like the side of this roller, it might not change as much as you're rotating, but there's certain parts that will drastically change because of a high angularity or just it, it's, uh, I can look at the front of the roller in the side of a roller and in my brain know that that is still the roller. Humans have neural networks built in our heads, you know, all that. We know things. We recognize objects. Computers can't. They need. They really need help to connect one to the next, one to the next, or else you get 10 degrees of rotation different on one of these objects. You might say, oh, that, that's a completely different object. I've never seen that one. Mm -hmm. uh, but in reality, it's the same thing. It, it just doesn't know. It does not know how to put that there. Um, yeah. So... Yeah. And um, your comment there about like the difference between yeah, like a brick facade or just a, you know, a building facade, which is flat, like, yes, that, that will look very similar as I look at it from different angles. But as you start to get to, you know, objects that are more geometrically complex, you know, it's not just a facade, it's, you know, it's curved and bent. And like in here, you've got a door handle, you've got vents, you've got other, you know, insets mm -hmm. and, you know, very, you know, there's a lot of variety in that geometry. And so you, you need a greater number of photos, you know, from smaller positional changes or smaller angular changes in order to maintain that sort of visual appearance or the visual consistency 
um, in the appearance to be able to reconstruct it. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and it, yeah, so you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't overshoot as I like to say, I yeah. mean, there's no reason to take a photo every like third of a degree or something, but you, you know, you just, I always aim high, higher than you probably think you need. Um, and this is another good example. If I was to do this to like a lot of high detail, there's going to be all these occluded areas. If I just did a loop around this loader, like this between where this axle is, and this is a perfect opportunity where you could, you could push in. You're out here taking these wide established establishing shots and you could like push in and you want to get a, like say around these little cracks, all these little details. Now you can just do a bunch of little arcs and then come back out, do a little wide arc, a shallow arc. And just make sure that as you're arcing, you're taking a lot of photos because you're going to be, oops, you're going to be really close to these kind of round objects. You want to make sure as you're going, you're taking the snap, snap, snap. Or if you're taking a video, we'll talk about that and how that can help as well. But um, yeah, as you get close in, it, it further out, you can go a lot further before you have to take that photo to get 100. But if you're if you're close in, you're not moving much before you're taking that next photo. So know, know that, that, you know closer you are that that might feel like you're taking overkill in shots but you're not um so uh a little plug here we we like video uh at computer vision decoded we're actually you know this is brought to you by every point in every point we've built this engine that takes video and extracts intelligently all those images so you don't have to think about it because you're taking a video what are you taking 30 60 frames per second so you're getting a lot of different images and um so here's just a couple apps. If you guys are exploring that you can just jump in and use, there's Scanamaze, Recon 3D, and Point Precise. Any one of these, they all use that image extraction. So as you're just trying to learn, I mean, these are great choices and great choices beyond that. But using video, it's there's there is some issues with using video, but just know that it's a good way to learn the motions and become a, a professional at this um, by using one of these these apps. And so Jared. When you use what, what do we do with video that we're able to to do that? Is that just um, you know are we just taking a, f a frame every two seconds and make hope hope it works, or is there something a little bit more intelligent going on there? Yeah, no, there, there, there's there's more than going on there than just trying to extract a frame every every second, which you can do. Yeah. So like you know if you're just getting started and you're trying to do this on your own, a lot of times if you have a video, you know you can try extract. Oh, extract a frame every you know half second or a third of a second or once a second, you know, try to do this on your own. But, you know, as you'll find, um, depending on the distance that you were to that object or how fast you were moving, you're going to have varying degrees of overlap in that, in that reconstruction or in that set of images or, you know, set of extracted frames. And so mm -hmm. what we've done is, you know, automatic, um, you know, scene analysis, you know, so tracking the parts of the scene, seeing, you know, what, well, what all is shown in that video frame, you know, and automatically enforcing these constraints we just talked about, saying, well, hey, I, I want to maintain at least two-thirds overlap in different parts of the image so that I can reconstruct everything that was seen in that video footage. And so we've developed algorithms that do that for us, you know, automatically. And it's sort of a nice sweet spot where, you know, it maintains the connectivity, maintains that overlap, but isn't overkill. Um, you know, you know, you could just say, well, I'll just take every frame, but then you end up with just so much data that your processing goes on forever and um, it's almost information over load um, mm -hmm. and so we, we've you know settled it on that sweet spot where we have you know really great connectivity really great overlap um, without going without going overkill overboard. yeah now there is some downsides to video that we can we can just touch on um, if you're just learning those downsides don't really matter because you're just trying to learn but um, if you're taking individual photos and you can see on 
believe all three of these apps, in fact, there's like a web component where you can upload individual images. But the, but the downside, you know, the downside to a video is if you're if you're moving really fast, you're gonna get some motion blur because mm-hmm. that a sensor can only read out so fast. And um, you know, ideally, you got sh- the sharpest photos possible. But if you're learning, it doesn't really matter. If you're just doing this for fun, you're putting things on Sketchfab. They're like, hey, show show your friends what you scanned. It probably doesn't matter. But just know if you're taking video, go really go slow. I say just walk like a slow walking pace um, as you're moving along these motions. Um, you can always pause if you need a really clear shot. But um, there's some downsides there, um, of course, compared to two images. Because um, when you extract a single image, let's say even out of a, t- a HD video, 1080p, that's only two megapixels, and you get mm-hmm. a higher megapixel. But again, that just means maybe you need to be closer to an object. So I, I would say this is a great way to start. And... This might be where you need to end too for what you're doing. There's a with video, you got the the advantage of being able to move fast. So I want to scan yep. an environment. I don't I don't have two hours. I only have ten minutes. You're gonna get it. You're gonna get it in a video, in record time compared to to photos. So it just matters what you're doing. I mean, if if, if you're doing historical preservation, you probably know what you're doing already. You're probably not even watching this by now, but. But know that, like, if if you want really want to dive heavy into getting the most realistic textures and geometry and everything, you're gonna take images, stills for the most part. But you know, this this is a again a great way to learn um, as well. So I'm just gonna show you guys. I think I still have a couple more slides. So all these are from video. Yeah. And I post these all the time. And people are like, oh man, what camera do you use? I'm like my iPhone. And they're like, oh wow, there's so much detail. Well, this cat loader here, this this one in the bottom left. If you're if you're well, hopefully you're, you're tuned in to watch this on YouTube or on the live stream, but um, there's tons of texture details. And this one I use Scanamaze, and all those details just because I got really close, and I just got really inside of all this. I did a bunch of little arcs around everything, make sure I kind of got everything I could. And you know, even at I think this was HD, two megapixels, but two megapixels from a foot away is pretty good texture detail. So just know that. It might take longer to get all the tracks and all those little details, but you know, it just depends what you're going for. And um, again, like these, these are point precise on the right side where I got the the point clouds. Where I, you know, these are these are interiors. Again, I just abide by those motions, and you're not very far from anything inside typically, so you can you can get great uh, images. So I guess Jared, the last thing I just want to touch on, I didn't have a dedicated slides, but there was. Uh, there's lighting and there's camera gear, and I get a lot of those questions too. Well, what camera gear should I use? Um, more than more than that than lighting, but just I want to touch on lighting. Know that we have an episode. I think it's two episodes ago. Computer vision in the wild, great episode. Jared breaks down all kinds of things to consider when outside and doing things with there's people walking around, and I think those are perfect compliments to this. But we do talk about you want you want lighting to be ideal if it matters for your project. If not, you're gonna have shadows. So this this middle, this middle, there's like four machines I did. There's like a shadow across the bucket, there's shadows and the, uh, you know, coming across these machines, you can see shadows everywhere. Uh, that might not be ideal versus this one with the Vespa, that was like overcast. And so there's no, there's a shadow right underneath the Vespa, but a lot less shadows. So just, just depends on what you're trying to do. Uh, if you're just practicing, it doesn't matter. And those shadows can make for a really cool looking model. But again, if you're trying to make like a game-ready object, you're going to have to make sure that those are all gone and learn how to shoot without without all those the, the lighting. Oh, this one to the van, it's got this really bright white section, and that's just 
light beaming on through. So lighting does matter because it'll it'll bake in the light and darks into the textures of your your points or your meshes. But um, you know, it's just something to be cognizant of. And go watch that computer vision decoded episode three where we we talk about that. Um, but gear, uh, and then again, get, these were all taken with iPhones. Um, I've used all kinds of cameras. Jared, is there is it recommendations for someone getting started of, you know, like what camera they should use? I said, use the camera that you have. You know, yeah. that's what I do. I just keep my, you know, keep my phone in my pocket. If I'm out somewhere and see something interesting, I'll pull that out. You know, I, I love, for me, my go-to apps, you know, point precise with the, you know, video collection mode. You know, I, I love video just because for how simple it makes it, you know, how simple it is to capture that scene. I don't have to worry about and do the mental math of, okay, did I have the right overlap? Did I do the right things? You know, it's just capturing those frames for me. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's the phone you have in your pocket. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if you're, you have a drone, I've had that too. Someone say, I want to get a new drone for making 3D models. And I'm like, new drones, do you have one or are you, are you just looking to buy a new one for the first time? And if they're like, oh, well, I have a DJI Air 2 or Air 2S, whatever. Like, I don't have the Phantom 4 Pro V2 with the awesome shutter. I'm like, well, that's great. Go fly with that drone. That's perfect. You know, again, it's a camera you have. Learn to get a lot out of it. I know some spectacular filmmakers who are making amazing film using like a six-year-old camera because they just know how to use it really well uh at this point i'd say the cameras are getting so good yeah that they're you know i wouldn't go out and buy the new iphone 14 pro with the 48 megapixel you know bear you know quad bear thing all that because you probably won't even get use out of that you know those ends up being a hundred hundred megabyte files you get a lot of great details, but if, if you're just doing this for yourself, those details won't matter. At that point, if you're buying that gear, you're way past this. You know what, you know what you're doing, and you, you know you, if you need it or not. So just, yeah, use that camera in your pocket. Jared uses an old Android. It's like four years old. So, you know, his scans look as good as mine. So there's that. Um, so here's a couple more scans as well. I mean, this was Scanamaze. Um I think I actually did this vehicle with Recon 3D. Recon 3D, the great thing about that as well on the iPhone is we do use um, the active LiDAR sensor to fill in like these white spaces because if there's no texture, you're not going to get something. So that's something we didn't really touch on either. There's no texture, nothing visibly different from image to image on that surface. It might get dropped in the photogrammetry, um, but we use an active LiDAR sensor in Recon 3D and Point Precise if you have a LiDAR-enabled iPhone and, and you can capture all those great blank spaces. Um, and again, yeah, Scanamaze, I think I used for all of these. Um, and again, they were all from video. Not a single one of these were image stills. Even this Nike, look at the textures I got on that. But I just moved really slow using video and then I did this little thing with uh, different software to make it look cool. But um, you can get a lot of geometry. You just got to be really close to it. Um, so... I think we've kept people long enough. Uh, we don't want to go for a three-hour Joe Rogan podcast length here. But uh, anyways, uh, I say go out and scan something. If you guys are watching this, we, we posted this again on the Every Point. We'll be on the Every Point YouTube channel. It'll be on the Computer Vision Decoded podcast. You can just search for that on, I think, all major podcast apps. Just make sure you get the guide in the show notes to follow along the visuals. And then also, if again, on LinkedIn, this will be, you can rewatch this at any time. But if you scan something with one of those three apps and use hashtag EveryPoint, that's the company that's you know sponsors this. Uh, they're the ones who made this happen. If you use that hashtag, uh, I'll be monitoring that, and I'd be happy. You might just make a showcase on the EveryPoint 
uh, social media channels and people can see what you got. Um, so just have a lot of fun with that. Um, I'm going to check the comments to make sure I haven't been watching them too closely. Is there any apps planning for nerf output? Um, you know, I know there is an app coming out called Luma AI or think it's called that it's not our app it's not it's not one that we've made but it, there is apps coming i would say um from us I, I can't tell you um but just know that they're coming everything you saw here works pretty much for nerfs too because at the core of it it's using st structure for motion and that's just us trying to make sense of the world through images and motion and that parallax and if that that is like the first step for making a nerf is figuring out where all those cameras belong in space and then it turns it into a, a, a neural radiance field yeah um so that, that could be its own episode for all i know in fact i'm probably the expert of the two of us here on that um he but but just know that yeah everything you saw here try it for a nerf it should work just fine yeah oh and work just fine and it's even actually you know most beneficial for it because as you said there the first step of a nerf is to figure out the pose the position orientation of those cameras you know it's using structure for motion it's using photogrammetry mm -hmm. to figure out how to orient those images within the scene to then do that nerf you know visualization and so the the, the strategies we just talked about today with the camera motion and you know and the strategies for bundle adjustment or not bundle adjustment sorry loop closure um an overlap, all of that, you know, it's beneficial whether or not you're doing a point cloud, a triangle mesh, or a nerf. Um, all mm -hmm. of these things, you know, just sort of common principles in computer vision and, and 3D reconstruction. Yeah. And, and almost, I, I believe all of the nerf, all the different nerf methods that I've seen published, all, they, they all either assume you already have data with camera poses or they give you some sort of Python script that runs Colmap usually, which is just an open source structure for motion, 3D reconstruction software. And um, it, they all implement, yeah, they all work the same way as we just showed you here. I mean, there's there's nothing magic that like one company does that no one else does when it comes to 3D construction. There's some just, it's like core principles, I'm assuming, Jared, that <laughs> you, you learn that you, you just, they all work the same. Yep. However, Colmap does use loop closure too. So yes. the better your, your, your camera positions for a nerf the better it'll look so yes. if your cameras are off things just won't look right too so again loop closure coming back where you came from uh, all those things definitely help and python uh, when you run any of these i think all of the scripts i've seen for preparing your images from nerfs they all use there might be different ways cool maps running it but i've i've as i've dove into it they all still will do a, an occasional check for loop closures as it's trying to figure it out so Loop closures are your friend, gets you really tight data and really good camera poses, really good results. Um, so just have fun with it. And um, yeah, thanks for watching. I hope I hope everyone learned something out of this. This was a, a heck of an episode. Uh, Jared, um, I, I, last thing I would add, um, if, if, if you have questions, put them on this, you know, this stream or on our YouTube channel. Uh, I can, I'll, I will prod jared to answer anything i can't answer um but i mean i've got 10 years of scan experience he can explain at the scientific level but if something's not working out yeah post it post it on this on this episode uh we'd love to to, to even critique them or something give us some more content that might be fun but um you know that'll be fun and again this will be on podcast form on youtube's on the every point channel for youtube and again here on linkedin so just look out for that. Uh, if you found us through every point or through one of our own personal social channels, we'll be, of course, telling everyone where it's at. And in the show notes, I'll have a link to the guide. 
and I'll might update that guide occasionally. So I'll make sure I tell people, hey, I've updated that guide, but that, that guide will be out there forever or for as long as we <laughs> can host it and it'll be it'll be free. And hopefully that'll help you set you on your way to doing some three-year reconstructions. And so don't forget to put hashtag every point on one of your scans and we will just might have to showcase it on our website. So thanks everyone. And um, thanks for coming, Jared. And I'll see you guys in the next episode.